It was around 2 a.m. on December 10th, 1958. A young woman who went by the name of Sister Barbara sat up abruptly, having been jarred awake by an explosion. Sister Barbara was a member of the Wisdom, Knowledge, Faith, Love Fountain of the World religious sect. The WKFL Fountain of the World had been founded in 1948. Its leader was a man who called himself Krishna Vinta. Vinta, who was referred to as the master by his 100-some followers, was a handsome charismatic. His long hair and beard, yellow robes, and dirty bare feet were used by his followers as proof that he was, as he said he was, the reincarnation of Christ. On the surface, Vinta was a proto-New Age hippie who preached equality, service, and tolerance. Barbara was a true believer in Vinta. That early winter morning, she had been sleeping in her dormitory at the group's rustic 20-acre compound in Box Canyon, outside of the city of Chatsworth in northwest Los Angeles County. I looked out the window and saw the reflection of flames all over the hillside, she would later recall. I said, Oh, look out there. It's positively beautiful out there. By that time, Letta, a priest, woke up and said, I think we better find out what that beautiful is coming from. I'm Hadley Mears, and this is Underbelly L.A. The prophet known as Krishna Venta was born Francis Herman Pinkovich in San Francisco in 1911. Of Jewish-Russian descent, Pinkovich took to the rails as a teenager, bumming all over Depression-era America. He was arrested for numerous small crimes, including burglary and check fraud, and most disturbingly, writing threatening letters to President Roosevelt. In 1937, he married a woman named Lucille, who gave birth to two sons. Pinkovich worked odd jobs in the shipyards of Oakland and as a boiler maker in Berkeley. He also spent time in jail and in a mental institution. After divorcing Lucille and briefly joining the army, Pinkovich married his second wife, Ruth, in Salt Lake City in 1946. The couple would go on to have six children. 1946 seems to have been a pivotal year in the life of Pinkovich. While in the Pacific Northwest, he became fascinated with the Mormon religion, particularly their belief in the Melchizedek priesthood. He came to believe that his body had become host to Christ everlasting, whose soul had commandeered to earth from the planet Neophrates on a convoy of rocket ships whose passengers included Adam and Eve. He claimed to have no visible navel, changed his name to Krishnavinta, grew a beard and dressed to appear Christ-like, and began to tour the country giving lectures outlining his expanding but meandering theology. Along the way, Vinta and his wife, now called Sister Ruth, attracted a small number of followers who turned over all possessions and money to the group, 
grew their hair and beards long, dropped their surnames, and went barefoot as a symbol of service and humility. They also wore robes of various colors, each denoting their rank and skills. Nurses wore blue, kitchen workers wore brown, students wore green, and so on. They lived their lives based on the teachings of the Ten Commandments and Krishna's eleven tenets, outlined in one of the many promotional leaflets distributed by the group. The fountain way of life, or should we say philosophy, is consolidated in a brief manner in the eleven rules. 1. To forget the outside world. 2. To become familiar with the inside workings of oneself. 3. To become unified with one another spiritually, mentally, and physically. 4. To forget self. 5. To create a desire within oneself towards higher spiritual equality. 6. To obtain wisdom. 7. To search for understanding in all things. 8. To face problems without thought of escape. 9. To become absorbed in love towards all things, seen and unseen, and so fulfill the laws of God. 10. To let the Spirit descend upon you. 11. To become a teacher, not in the world, but in the fountain, that all men who come out of the world shall find comfort in our midst. In 1949, the growing group of fountaineers bought 20 acres of scrubby land in a glen of the Santa Susana Mountains off Box Canyon Road. This hilly land, dotted with sycamores, oaks, large boulders, and caves, had formerly been inhabited by the Berry family, who had fashioned one of the large caves on the property into a functioning home. Vinta lived in this cave for a time, until the men of the commune built more permanent structures. Soon, a large sign, still existent today, greeted visitors. Ye who enter here, enter in upon holy ground. Sister Barbara described the small community, as it appeared in 1954, to John Fisher, author of The Spiritual Teachings and Biography of Master Krishna Vinta. The fountain was a large acreage with many different buildings on it. There was a dormitory for men and one for women. The main building had an upper and lower dining area, then a hobby room, kitchen, and two fireplaces. We even had two trees that grew right in the buildings and up through the roof. The brothers had constructed the buildings out of large rocks, wood, and glass. The lower dining area doubled as the church on Sunday and as a theater on Saturday nights. There was no grass on the property, just packed dirt, so that being barefoot was no problem. There were lots of trees, and the temperature, being Southern California, was just right. The men and women of the commune worked six days a week, living the hard and meager life of a substance farmer, while Vinta toured everywhere from Europe to South America, attempting to convert more sheep to the flock. Children in the sect were raised communally, but they were sent to local schools, and the group ate a primarily vegetarian diet. They became part of the local community, participating in holiday parades, distributing a fountain newspaper, and sending their choir to entertain folks in the area. The fountain was considered pretty harmless by their rural neighbors, who often gave them extra food during visits to the compound, which, you may be surprised to know, was open to all visitors and guests. Neighbors attended the fountain's four holy days, starting on March 29th, during which time Christmas, Easter, and the Resurrection and all fountain marriages were celebrated. The group was considered so benign that there wasn't even much of a fuss when Vinta was crucified each year, complete with fake blood and stigmata, 
as part of the annual resurrection pageant. Part of the reason for all this goodwill was the fact that the members of the fountain quickly became known as fearless do-gooders in times of emergency. Living their mantra of love and action, they worked to save passengers from the deadly Standard Airline crash of 1949, which killed 36 people. Actress Karen Marsh, who survived the crash, recalled thinking for a moment that she had died because angel-like men in long robes were walking around her. Firefighters became used to the sight of fountain nuns delivering food in the middle of a burning forest or parachuting into the scene of a disaster. Not surprisingly, good publicity began to come the fountain's way, including a spread in Look magazine and this glowing write-up in the L.A. Times. The WKFL Fountain of the World is a religious service fellowship devoted to helping mankind in any time of emergency or catastrophe. Brothers of the Order were at the Bakersfield and Tehachapi earthquakes almost before the ground ceased trembling. They have rendered valued and fearless aid at the scenes of plane crashes, forest fires, floods, and other disasters. Initials of this organization, founded by Krishna Venta, bearded philosopher and teacher, stand for wisdom, knowledge, faith, love. It aims to provide spiritual upliftment, economic security, spiritual love, and scientific development for those joining it. Communal living is provided on 20 acres owned by the group in Box Canyon, where they moved in 1949. A home is provided for all who want to live the Ten Commandments, regardless of race or creed, a spokesperson said. But all was not as it appeared. When Vinta was home, he spent countless hours lecturing his disciples on the darker parts of his doctrine. Vinta, like many cult leaders before and since, ardently believed the end of days was fast approaching and that only his followers would be spared its horrors. Using the Book of Revelations as a loose template, Vinta preached that it was his duty to gather 144,000 men, women, and children before World War III, which would be fought between communist Russia and capitalistic America. He claimed that a race war between blacks and whites would ignite America in 1965. At this point, he and his followers would go to a secret location, perhaps in the desert, to wait out the war. The Russians would back black Americans, only to forsake them once they had taken over America and the rest of the world. According to John Fisher, with a godless Russia in charge of all, Vinta and his followers would eventually spring into action. Fisher writes, After the 40-year period, the 144,000 elect will go into the world without guns or ammunition of any kind to protect them. All they will have for their defense is the Spirit of God and the love of their fellow men. When they go out, they will do so to extend their love to their fellow men, not their hate. And thus the world would be saved. Love, harmony, and Venta would rule all. Vinta often berated his followers, threatening to leave if they did not meet his exacting standards. I am your shepherd, you are the sheep, he admonished them during one meeting. When I organized this, I wanted a heaven on earth. Why not give it your all? 
giving their all included supplying the master with money to indulge in one of his greatest passions, gambling. This self-described Christ would often be found at the craps table in Reno and Vegas, although apparently he always lost, both at the wheel and at the one-armed bandit. However, his followers continued to give him money, holding to their theory that the master must be endowed with good luck, which would bring more money to the organization. This recklessness with money was compounded by his refusal to pay child support to his first wife, Lucille. Their decade-long battle culminated in 1956 with Venta's arrest for contempt of court. Leader of cult trades robes for jail dungarees, the L.A. Times blared, while Venta's followers marched outside the courthouse holding signs that read, Persecuted for lifelong devotion to God. Not all those who spent time on the compound were so forgiving of Venta's obvious flaws. He felt he did not have to follow the philosophies he put forth. He would also do anything to gain attention to himself. I believed he was hypocritical, recalled David Lackstrom, whose family lived in Box Canyon briefly. Most people there at the time wanted to believe he was the second coming, and they excused his human traits of smoking cigars, gambling, and driving way above the speed limit. To me, he had no humor, only a holier-than-thou attitude, recalled Lackstrom. By 1956, it seems Venta was feeling the heat. Not only was the law breathing down his neck, Fountain members had also been banned from helping firefighters because of insurance liability. In preparation for the coming race war, Venta took advantage of homesteading laws in Alaska and sent Sister Ruth and a group of followers to start a new compound outside the city of Homer. He planned to leave Box Canyon and join them, telling a local paper, We'll try to dispose of it before we go. If we have to, we'll just pick up and go. Soon Venta was turning even darker, predicting that he would be cremated and that violence would come to members of the fountain. On December 8, 1958, two disgruntled former fountain members, Peter Kamenoff, a.k.a. Brother Elizabeth, and Ralph Muller, a.k.a. Brother Jeroham, paid a visit to the office of James H. Mulvey, an investigator for the California District Attorney. Although fellow fountaineers would almost unanimously claim the men were usurpers, alcoholics, and, in the case of Kamenoff, a violent wife-beater, the men told Mulvey a very different story. They claimed Venta was a sexual predator, embezzler, and illegally practicing medicine. I am here, Muller told Mulvey, because I feel that it would be a good thing for society if something could be accomplished to eliminate him. That is my only motive. He asked if Venta could be prosecuted. If you get a confession on which I can prosecute, then of course I will, Mulvey responded. Muller and Kamenoff seemed to have taken Mulvey's words to heart. On the evening of December 9th, the men drove to the Box Canyon compound in an old pickup, packed with a crate of 20-foot-long sticks of dynamite. They recorded a bizarre tape, outlining their grievances and plans. Dear God, give us this night freedom or death, Muller says on the tape. Within the next three or four hours, we will get into the pickup truck, drive to Box Canyon, see Krishna, and demand a right adjustment be made. We have dedicated our lives to this mission, and whatever may come, this may be our last night in the world. 
They then headed into the main building on the compound, the dynamite now wrapped around Muller's body. Just before 2 a.m., Brother Martin, a recent convert, saw Krishna Vinta and his main aide, Cardinal Jean Shanafelt, arguing with a man he had never seen. The conversation stopped abruptly when I entered the door, Brother Martin recalled. I saw that I was intruding, excused myself, and decided to return to my quarters. I had gone about an eighth of a mile, I guess, and was on a small rise in the path. I turned, I have no idea why, and at that moment my ears were shattered by a most terrible explosion. The roof of the monastery literally blew off the building. Rather, it seemed as if it was lifted off, then disintegrated. A tower of blue and white flame then erupted into the sky. In the boys' dormitory next door, ten boys awoke, including Vinta's 11-year-old son, Sharva. The roof fell on top of us. Everything seemed to catch on fire, Sharva recalled to the Los Angeles Times. Our beds, the walls, our clothes, and all of our possessions. Miraculously, all the boys escaped and did what they had been trained to do, help. After we got out, we all joined in and did our best to stop the spreading fire and to prevent it from burning any of the other buildings. It hardly seemed like not more than five minutes had passed after we left the dormitory, then it was burned completely to the ground. It was horrible, horrible. Firefighters and police rushed to the gruesome scene. Bits of flesh were everywhere, and a child's nightgown hung from a tall tree branch. All that remained of the main building was a lone fireplace and a small rock partition. The remaining cult members knelt among the smoldering ruins and prayed. In all, ten people died in the explosion. They included Krishna Venta, Cardinal Jean, the two bombers, a seven-year-old girl and an eleven-month-old infant. Venta was identified by his dental plate. After waiting a time for his resurrection, Sister Ruth eventually had Venta buried at Valhalla Memorial Park in North Hollywood. The Master's Creed is to be positive, creative, and constructive in everything that you do, say, and think, Fountain member Sister Mary told a reporter for the LA Times. We are trying very hard to react to this as the Master would want us to. That is to be cheerful and positive, for mourning is negative. The cult slowly rebuilt their infrastructure, but lost many of their members. A few soldiered on for a time under the widowed Ruth, continuing to preach the Master's word both in Alaska and Box Canyon, flickering into the early 80s before dying out. At some point in the 1960s, an ex-con would even visit this dwindling compound in Box Canyon. There he would learn of the prophecies of Krishna Venta. Soon, he would be indoctrinating his followers just down the road at a dusty old film set called Spawn Ranch. He too envisioned a race war, a haven in the desert, and his eventual triumphant rule. His name was Charles Manson, and his war, which would soon cast a permanent shadow over the promise of Los Angeles, was known as Helter Skelter. 
Now that's a story that's been told many, many times. But we will be back with a season two, filled with lesser-known stories from the shady side of the street. I'm Hadley Mears, and you can follow me on Twitter at H-A-D-L-E-Y-M-E-A-R-E-S. You can follow Underbelly LA at Underbelly LA. We're also on Facebook. Just search Underbelly LA. Listen to all future episodes of this podcast by going to underbellyla.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you'd normally find a podcast. Every episode of this show is researched, written, and read by me, Adley Mears. This episode was based on an article I wrote for the formerly wonderful LA Weekly. Check it out. The show is produced by Drew Mackey and edited by Mika Grimm. Underbelly LA is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes is a Los Angeles-based, woman-owned podcast company. And if you want to learn about other shows on this network, go to tablecakes.com. If you want to support Underbelly LA, check out our digital tip jar at patreon.com slash underbellyla. Thanks for joining us on this, the last episode of the season of Underbelly LA. Stay tuned for next season, when we delve into more murder, mayhem, shade, and sunshine in the city of angels. A Table Cakes production.